This episode of Replayable is brought to you by Floodgate Games, the makers of games like Kites. In Kites, everyone works together to keep all of their kites, represented by colorful sand timers, in the air. Take turns playing cards, flipping and matching sand timers, and coordinating with other players to ensure none of the sand timers run out. If a timer runs out, a kite has crashed. Play all of the kite cards in the deck to win as a group. Find out more at floodgategames.com. Replayable, where we go into depth on our favorite tabletop games that keep us coming back again and again. I'm the start player, Todd, and today I'm joined by David and Paul. For our 16th episode, we will tell you about our most excellent elixirs while trying not to combust our kettles. Of course, we are the Quacks of Quedlinburg. The game is designed by Wolfgang Warsch and was originally released in 2018 by Schmidt Spiele with artwork by Dennis Lahausen. Are you two garlic heads ready to share your secrets? No, but I have the cure for all that ails you. (laughs) Let's go for bust. Right. (laughs) The Quacks of Quedlinburg combines strategy, luck, and a dash of potion-making fun. Players take on the roles of quack doctors competing to create the most potent and valuable potions. Each player has their own cauldron board where they'll brew their potions. The catch is that you'll be drawing ingredients blindly from a bag with the hope that your potion doesn't explode. The more ingredients you add, the more powerful your potion becomes. But if you push your luck too far, your cauldron will explode. Throughout the game, players can purchase new ingredients with special abilities to improve their chances of brewing successful potions. I remember seeing this game for the first time at BGGCon in Dallas in 2018, and it quickly went on my wish list. And I remember receiving it from my secret Santa that year and introducing you guys to it at game night. What were your original thoughts when we sat down and played this game way back in, what would that have been? Early 2019? That sounds about right. Yeah, I I hated it. (laughs) I I thought it was just a shiny Yahtzee. (laughs) They should put that on the box. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I remember being strangely... Uh, first of all, you showed up and you're like, I got quacks. And maybe Greg was like, oh, cool. And I'm like, what are you even talking about? What is quacks? I've never even heard of this. Like it was literally <laughs> out of nowhere. And so I had missed any sort of buzz or whatever surrounded it. But I remember being strangely a little confused because then we just start drawing out of our bags. And I'm like, well, wait, we just go. We all go at the same time. It was a little chaotic the first time through it. You know, maybe didn't quite understand what we were doing, but then quickly was able to get on board. Yeah, absolutely. I really enjoy the alchemist theme, or in this case, you know, potion making. And so I was really enamored with it. Yeah, you know, I I remember uh, you guys were so excited to get your coin cases for all the cardboard chips. And I'm like, these suck. They, They make it so it doesn't fit. On right. the board anymore. <laughs> but, but then the BGG store came out with the acrylics and, and now it all plays perfectly. Yeah, there is a thread <laughs> out there that goes just into incredible detail about what size coin capsules you should get. And I forget whether it's 21, 22, or 23 millimeters, but whatever it is, there's one where it's super snug and you got to put it in just the right way to get that coin capsule closed. But I tell you, there's something about that sound that coin capsules make when you're churning them that is very distinctive. 
I agree. I use them for Arkham Horror and, and something like that, just reaching into the bag <laughs> to those coin capsules. Yes. Oh, me too. Yeah, it definitely improves Arkham Horror, and, and I, I think the sound improves Quacks as well. Right. Well, after that initial play, it, just like Al, I immediately went out and bought a copy of the game. Well, maybe not immediately because it was out of print. So I pre-ordered a copy of the game. And when that showed up, introduced it to my family, and, and they took to it right away. And I've since found it to be somewhat of a Swiss Army game where it can come out in just about any situation. It's super easy to teach gamers, non-gamers, whatever, and, and everybody can have fun with it because it's kind of it kind of equalizes between gamers and non-gamers. Experience doesn't get you that much further than a new player. Yeah, I really liked it, but without those coin capsules, I don't know, that might be necessary. Right. You know, I would say that being an experienced player is sometimes a drawback because at the end of the day, this is a blind draw and you could be playing the odds as strongly as possible and realize, you know, I only have one garlic left in my bag that could blow up my cauldron and I have, you know, one in five. So I have, a, I have an 80% chance of drawing a good token. And then, of course, you draw the one that busts you. We've seen games where the same player draws the wrong ingredient several times in a row and more than just the cauldron explodes. <laughs> <laughs> Their head explodes too. <laughs> right. That brings me to maybe it's my biggest take on the game is that I think if you blow up after the fourth round, you can't outwin the game unless the other players just play terribly and let you back in. But after turn four, why not? I mean, you just have to take points. Yeah. And everybody's bag is better than yours because they were able to purchase. Right. Yeah. They're buying fours and you're not buying anything. So, yeah, you're right. You're still in it, Paul, but you're not going to be competitive on the next round. Yeah, but are you in it? Well, the odds aren't making you competitive, but you just said that doesn't matter as much. Fair enough. <laughs> if you think of after turn four, turn four or after, when you reach into your bag, if you think of, oh, I hope I don't explode, if you instead think of it as there is a chip in here that is immediately fail, immediately lose the game, and worse, immediately lose the game yet still have to play it out. That's the way I think of it, because if you blow up on one of those turns, you're out of the game. It's like a, the assassin in code names. Wow. If you draw something that puts you over your seven or whatever it happens to be that round and you blow up, it's you're out of the game. It's a loser. So if you shift your mentality. I completely disagree. I think it makes your odds of winning far worse, but it's not like the assassin. I don't know if I've ever seen anybody blow up late. No, Dave's saying it's worse. Dave's saying it's insta-lose and you're still committed to playing for another half an hour. <laughs> yeah, but it's not insta-lose because you take points. Right. But, but you, no, you don't I, I make agree. your bag better to stay in the competition. I, I mean, maybe you've got a 1% chance of winning, but I think you've lost. I, I think you're out. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're actually talking about how the game makes you feel. I, I think we're talking about emotionally <laughs> right. losing when you blow up later in the game because you feel so disheartened that you don't want to keep going and you basically go on tilt <laughs> and keep blowing right. up right. every turn thereafter. You start making even worse decisions because you're like, I have to get max value. I mean, that's what we've seen in our plays. I, I'm not going to name names. but No, we are not. <laughs> well, because I think the reason is when you blow up, especially late, you know instantly it's a, it's your fault and it's nobody's fault but yours. It's not fate's fault. It's not odds fault. It's you should not have drawn. Right. There's just no excuse. 
<laughs> so then is it push your luck to the extreme in that sense? Because really it almost like don't stop, right? This is, you're just, you just keep drawing. It's you mean can't stop, right? Uh, no, maybe I mean, don't stop. Right. The way kids play ink and gold, <laughs> they just no. go, go, go. <laughs> <laughs> just keep going. You're right. Can't stop. There is an economy that you can build up. There is synergies between coins, but really it feels like that part is a distant second to the pushing your luck aspect of the game. Like I think Dave brought up a good point. It depends what turn it is. By the end of the game, you're at the extreme push your luck, especially on the last turn. Right. When you're going toe to toe, you're like, well, I'm behind, so I have to draw no matter what. Right. And on that last turn, we were able to look at each other's boards and we're all drawing at the same time, revealing at the same time. So it's definitely much more deterministic as to whether or not you should continue or whether you can bail out. Yeah. I mean, to me, Wax often feels like an automated game where you, you build your bag and then you just let a computer program run to see what happens. Like Challengers, you're just like... Oh, well, or yippee. <laughs> it's like watching a TV show. That's exactly what I'm saying, Paul, is that I actually, I almost don't think of it as press your luck because I think the decision, the, the, I don't think there's really much of a decision. It's if you are not at risk of blowing up, draw. There's no choices to be made. I mean, maybe there's some ingredients that give you little choices, but most of them just draw. Well, sure. Well, yeah, the real game is when you're at six or seven garlic on the board. What do you do then? You stop. Because having a bad turn is a setback. Blowing up is I'm out of the game. I, I think it's that clear. Huh. And how often do you win, Dave? Well, with whom? <laughs> with my family? I'm pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just leave that one sit. No, I actually, I mean, I do okay. Yeah, that's pretty funny. <laughs> For the record, I like pressing my luck with six on the board and sometimes with seven. <laughs> I think you have to to win against good players. Yeah. Right. So then let's talk about your thoughts on strategies then. So, for example, first round, I almost feel it is obligatory to bust the cauldron on the first round because then you are usually going to have at least 10 purchasing power. Yes. Yeah, it's 10 or bust. Right. If you get to 10, maybe yeah. you stop. And also consider a ruby. I, I, although I think the ruby's at nine. So, Nine and a ruby or 10, depending on what you want to buy in the purchase. Card. I think it's 10. 10 and a ruby? No, I think you want 10 or more. And I don't think the ruby is sufficient. No, the, the hawk moth is usually so important. Yes. Right. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's 10 or bust. The ruby schmooby. <laughs> and busting is inconsequential at that point. And maybe even, I think what you're saying, Todd, maybe even a little bit to your favor, because then you're probably going to start with a rat tail. Exactly. And a rat tail early on when it doesn't matter, because we've seen in games, even in late rounds, if there are an insane number of rat tails being given, it, <laughs> 22, <laughs> it doesn't matter, right? Because well, everybody's getting close to the end anyway. Maybe that early game rat tail might be the difference between having 11 to spend and 12 to spend. And maybe 12 is going to get you, a, I don't know, blue two or, or whatever it is like. Having an extra dollar early on can get you an early blue chip. Right. So that rat tail could make a difference. That's true. And and you're you're pointing out the crow skulls, Dave, because uh, you usually play with set one. Yeah. Yeah. Where they let you or uh, right or just any when, bag. You know, if you 
really going into a round, you should think, what do I want to buy? What do I want to accomplish? Rather than just start blindly drawing and say, I hope this goes well. If you have a goal in mind, like this turn, I'd really like to get to 14. Right. That way I can buy, you know, whatever, or 13. So I can buy a pumpkin and a moth, or if that's what your strategy is. And then just shoot for that goal rather than just let's shoot for the moon and see where we end up. Oh, no, I blew up. I think having goals each round is a good idea. (laughs) So then we played with set number four on our last game, right? And I think crow skulls turned out to be the best ingredient that we could buy in that one as well. It was late round, but the four value on that basically said if you landed on a ruby space when you placed that, it gave you four points. And so we all realized that we should be buying those things and and hoping that we get them to line up with ruby spaces and not they have any control over it. But, you know, we draw them and luck into it because (laughs) it was so much more powerful than anything else we could have had. I felt like it was the only path to try and catch up to you. But then you were buying them, too. So (laughs) (laughs) to me, it was like, oh, it's four spaces and the potential for points. It was easy compared to, oh, getting another ruby or something. Well, I do appreciate you saying that we all realized that because I did not. I was not buying blue and that to my detriment. (laughs) I, I think I ended up in a distant third. But when I evaluated them in the beginning, I thought those blues are going to give you early game points, which is going to give everybody else rat tails. And then they're just going to pass you later on. And I can say now I completely misread that. The rat tails are not as powerful as I expected them to be. Yeah, you were actually in, in fourth place, Dave. Oh, thanks for bringing that up. I'm, I appreciate that. Yeah, because third place realized <laughs> the, the, the blue curl skulls weren't that important. And so they, they leapt ahead of you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I was close, maybe near the end, but then you guys just took off. You guys were getting... 14, 15, or whatever An points. An extra 8 to 12 points with those yeah, crow skulls, it, yeah. exactly. And not having crow skulls late in the game, just, there was no chance. So then what are your thoughts about advancing the drop or the drip, whatever you want to call it? How much do you prioritize advancing the drop over, like, making sure your flask is refilled? It goes back to what Dave was saying before about having a plan. If you think you're going to be able to buy what you want without advancing it, then it's not important anymore, but at least the first half of the game, I I think it's the highest priority. Advancing the drop. Yeah. Early on. Yes. To, to be able to afford the chips that you want. Yes. Okay. I see what you're saying. Early on advancing that drop is, is nice because that early on, that's going to, that lasts for all game. Exactly. But kind of on an even playing field, I think refreshing your flask is more powerful than a, than a drop. That flask, I feel like, is criminally underused by new players. Right. It's super important after turn four, like you said, because yeah. it allows you to, to keep going risk-free. Right. Maybe. Yeah, when you're drawing in jeopardy. <laughs> well, well, Dave, why don't, we, why don't we talk about when you like to use the flask? I, well, I, my decision on whether I use the flask is when I get into jeopardy, meaning I could draw and explode, Then I evaluate from there, is this turn good enough? Can I just stop here and get a good purchase and just call this round? Or am I in a position where I'm going to fall too far behind? I have to press it. Then I'll use my flask, which feels like nine times out of 10, you use your flask and you draw the same chip anyways, and you're right back where you were. (laughs) Does it matter if it's a one, two, or three? It only matters if there's a chip in my bag that can make me explode. So if, if it's a... You know, if I pull a two and that puts me up to five and my three is still in the bag, now I'm in jeopardy. 
and I don't like drawing in Jeopardy, so I'll throw that two back in. Because I think some people feel like using the flask on a one is a waste. It, well, it's not a waste if it, if it gives you five and your three is still in there. So if you're at four, you draw a one, and then that's no different to me. Five is five. And if I can get back to four where I'm not in jeopardy of blowing up, it's worth it. Yeah, I agree with Dave on this one. And there was some concern, I guess, in one of the versions of the rules that didn't show that the flask has a garlic on it, but it can only be used to return garlic to the bag. The rule book left it out, but the actual component shows garlic. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. I never understood Speaking it. Speaking of rule books. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other the other week we realized that <laughs> Todd, Dave, and Al each have a different version of English quacks with three different rule books. Yeah, that was just yeah. crazy. The first of which says that you don't start with a ruby, and the next two say that you do start with a ruby. Well, I think to be clear, it doesn't say you don't start with the ruby, but it doesn't say that you do start with the ruby. So it left it out. It didn't, it doesn't say right. you don't, it just left it out. Yeah. Yeah. So the story is then when we went to play the other night, we got out Todd's copy, which is first edition and I'm setting it up and I said, everybody starts with the ruby. And then everybody starts laughing at me saying, what, what are your house rules? What do you mean? Everybody starts with the ruby. I'm like, fine suckers. <laughs> I'm going to go look it up. Hand me the rule book. And it is not in the rule book. <laughs> and it really messed with my concept of reality. I thought, I, there's no way I made this up. And boy, did we so, give you grief for having your own house rule to make the game you know, that much easier. I know. <laughs> I've been very vocal about my opinions on house rules. And here I was caught. <laughs> <laughs> but I was able to show later that in my copy of the game, it says everyone starts with a ruby. Right. <laughs> And actually, in the original German version of the rules, everybody starts with a ruby. It was, for whatever reason, it was an omission when North Star Games created the first edition of the English game. Strange. Which, and I think North Star's response was basically, start with a ruby, don't start with a ruby. It doesn't matter. Have fun. Their same response to, <laughs> are the is the supply limited? Should it scale for players? And it's like, nope, just have fun. Don't worry about that kind of stuff. <laughs> nice lead <laughs> in. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to ask about. So theoretically, there's not supposed to be a, a component limitation, but from a manufacturing perspective, of course there is. And when we run into really popular ingredients like the blue fours in the first set of ingredients, they sell out. So what are your thoughts about that? Do you like it better that it is a shortage? And do you think you should... And I guess we'll we'll get ahead of ourselves. Maybe maybe you want to talk about it later if we get to house rules. Do we want to posit that there are scaling components for fewer than a full round of players, fewer than four without the herb witch's expansion? Or yeah, you know? I mean that's that's interesting. You know, I have no problem with it. I think it's a really interesting question, but I like the limited number of ingredients because that's how Dominion is. Right. You know, you start the game with 10 of each card. And I I mean, Dominion does not change that setup for number of players, right? Right. It's 10 cards in each stack. Yeah, I totally agree with that because it self-balances. I mean, if there's a gr something that's clearly better than everything else, we all snap it up and it, it's gone. We all get our fair share of it, assuming we all evaluate it the same way. I think it balances. I wow. actually think of it... Wait, what? <laughs> uh, I mean... Because of the luck involved in 
<laughs> exploding pots. We we don't all get our fair share. Some that's people, true. yeah, <laughs> explode and don't don't and get I, their fair share. I guess right. that's the game. But I I think of the component count maybe more backwards. That I like that it's scarce because in any in any resource game, I mean the resources should be scarce, and we're competing for scarce resources. And so rather than feeling like in a four or five player game there aren't enough, I feel like maybe in the two player game there's too much that you can just do whatever you want for as much as you want. And you don't have right. to worry about that limitation. And we've talked about in other games, it's being able to excel within the parameters or within a box is what makes the game fun. So should we come up with a house rule that scales the number of components down? Because let's look at even the biggest scenario, which is you're now playing with Thur Witches, which has a bunch more components in it, or even I think Alchemist has some extra ones in there you could end up having even more components in there than what's in the base game. And now you're playing with two or three people and it's glittering prizes. There's as many components as you need of whatever you need for as long as the game takes. So you're saying Dave's position puts him in the logical conclusion of house ruling a component limitation for fewer players. <laughs> yeah, that is what I'm I saying. I agree with that. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to do that because I feel like that needs to be play tested. <laughs> But uh, yeah, in fact, the way I've done mine is I've thrown all of the ingredients in from all of the expansions, whether I'm using the expansions or not, which has, I think we played. Yeah, five we had a very night. hard time finding the Crow Skull 4s yeah. the other night. It's there but all we did, in a five player game with a strong Crow Skull 4, we didn't run out. Yeah, we did. Oh, okay. <laughs> I believe we bought every one, but. It was hard to be 100% sure since they were mixed in with the twos and ones. I dumped them out and searched. I, I couldn't find one. I had to settle for a two. Well, I should probably get those boxes that you have done. <laughs> because you were you were the last player on that turn that they ran out. I was. Yep. I mean, not that I needed it, but I yeah, wanted so, it. So, <laughs> you know, not, not, to, not to steal your thunder, Todd, but what about the um, the start player card? I don't know if that's necessary in the game. The start player card. So you mean the fact that the start player draws a card for the round? The card that the start player draws every turn, yeah. Oh, the event deck. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Yeah, what do you guys think? I think it's just there to salt the game a little. And even if you're playing with the first set of ingredients, which most people never branch away from it, it seems like, those event cards are making it somewhat unique for that play. So I like them. The fact that it follows the start player around, I think you need, because there is a component a shortage. Start player, that's true. Yeah, that's what it's used for. I, I think you need a way to say, okay, who is it that gets to buy first? Because in the end, there is a component shortage due to manufacturing. And if you had... Very true. If you bought multiple sets of the geek up bits, which would be expensive, but if you did it and there was no limit, then it really doesn't matter who the start player is. Yeah, you know... Most of the cards seem pretty fair because they give everyone the same option, but many of them are not. They just reward like whoever ran out of rubies or right. whoever exploded. And I don't know how I feel about those. They, they seem to just make the game even more chaotic. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. They range from insignificant to randomly helping one or two players a lot more than the other players. And especially with that one that you mentioned, Todd, one that's like, if you're all out of rubies, you get to get something. I forget what it is. Move your drop or something. 
But my thinking is if you're all out of rubies, it's because you just spent rubies taking advantage of that. So it's the <laughs> right. rich get richer in that case. Yeah, there was quite a bit of that. I felt like they needed to be staged, like maybe have them be phase one, phase two and have them be so that, you know, in the early game, they can be more, you know, magnanimous and help people. But in the late stages, they're going to be targeting the, the people who are falling behind. I think the rat tails are great early in the game. I think late game, they, they start to lose their effectiveness. And, right. and then we saw just a crazy edge case the other night, which was because there were so many rat tails being handed out to players that were farther behind. They didn't have as much opportunity for their chips to pay off in their cauldrons because they were reaching 35 and done. <laughs> I think there was a turn where we all hit 35, <laughs> right? Well, all but one. Yeah, I didn't hit it, but that's fine. Some, oh, I was thinking somebody uh, blew well, up. Well, you were the one awarding us with rat tails. So. Well, right. yeah, that's the part you left out, Todd. You're being very modest. Why was I getting 10 <laughs> rat tails a turn? <laughs> because you, right. you had lapped somebody on the board. <laughs> Greg had, at one point yeah. said, I get all the rat tails. <laughs> which we counted to be like 22 yeah <laughs> right yeah yeah that happened but I, I think greg put it best he called the rat tails a keep up mechanism and not a catch-up mechanism and i thought that was pretty insightful that it just hmm. it, it keeps you from really falling behind more so than it helps right. you catch up I, I think they're very necessary in the game yeah i think they are but i i think you know there, there needs to be something even even slightly different because Paul, in that case, that last round, I think you still got seven or eight of them, right? Yes. Which that is one to two blue fours you never got a chance to place or even try to place. Yeah. I mean, I hit 35 pretty quickly that re- that last round. Right. So it's it's an interesting catch-up mechanism or keep up, however you want to say. In, in Early on, it feels overpowered. I mean, I remember... You know, we all kind of grit our teeth when if you roll the die because you scored the most up like and it, you you roll a point and you cross over that rat tail and everyone behind you is just like cheering because it's like, hey, we're all going to get an extra point early on. That's that's big. In the first few turns, it's amazing. Yeah. 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 All right. So when I say that it's bag building distilled down to its purest essence, I'm thinking of something like Orlean, right, where you are drawing stuff from the bag or even the old uh, pillars of the earth where it is either doing turn order or it's giving you a resource to do something to develop the board. And there's more to the game than just, okay, I've drawn this thing. I, I agree a hundred percent. But with Quacks of Quedlinburg, literally it's, I drew this thing and I put it down and now I'm drawn the next thing. And so there's not a lot of adjunct activity beyond just reaching in and, and pulling out the next thing and, and sending it down. So that's what I mean by, distilled to its purest essence it's one of them but i want to throw puzzle strike onto the podium okay uh, because that doesn't even have a board that is just the chips yeah you're right and there's nothing else in the game okay so there's even a purer essence well there's a purest some of the chips have (laughs) a lot of text on them So, right. So there, there is a lot going on in Puzzle Strike too, but I, I think it, uh, it can fight Quacks for the crown. That is a great pull. I haven't played Puzzle Strike in a long time. Do you have a copy? I do not. Yeah, it's been a long time for me okay. as well. Have you ever played Dave? No, I have not. 
But I think saying that it's, you know, bag building distilled to its pure essence, I think that goes to what Paul was saying earlier is that the part in between purchasing, between building your bag, the actual drawing from the bag, since those those decisions are not that great, those decisions are usually pretty obvious that I forget how Paul put it, but those are almost just on autopilot. It's, or, it's called automation. Like a lot of people are talking yeah. about challengers being a new wave of automation in board games. But I, I think Quax has it too. So it's like you program your deck and then see what happens. Is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah. And so in that case, this would be kind of bag building to its pure essence, because really that's 95% of the decisions in the game. Okay. By the way, Puzzle Strike, apparently I own a copy. (laughs) Of course you do. (laughs) Uh, The biggest problem with Puzzle Strike is it's not as good with multiplayers. It's best as a heads up game, 1v1. Right. All right. So with that, let's jump into the prompts. Weighting complexity on Board Game Geek scale of one to five, how would you rate the complexity of Quacks of Quedlinburg? Bag building distilled down to its almost purest essence. It, it, this is very hard, but I'm going to have to give it a one. The, the rare one for weight and complexity. Yeah. Dave, what did you put? Yeah, I debated that. I, I'm actually going to put it at a two uh, because evaluating the different ingredient sets and trying to see, just like I said earlier, not being able to see the power of the blue uh, ingredient that one game because I thought it was going to power one way, but it turned to go, to go the other way. That That's not always obvious right up front. But I mean, in support of what Paul's saying, what I said earlier is I can I teach this to, you know, new players, non-gamers. It's pretty easy for anyone to pick up. That puts it very much on the low end of the scale. And they can still win too. Yeah. And if we add expansions, though, that's when it starts to get up into a three. Yeah, without expansions. Yes. Right. Just base game. And I agree. I had it down as a two. I, the base game is definitely a one. Look, it's pushing your luck. Draw chips out of the bag. Don't get more than seven in garlic if you want to keep going uh, or at least score points and be able to buy. And that's, we're done, right? Full teach. And if that's all there was to it, it would easily be a one. But I think the way the ingredients can interact Maybe it's a two to start out. And then once you're familiar with it, it drops down to one something. There's something there. And what we didn't talk about is each set of ingredients. And we don't necessarily have to. But what is fun to do is once you have an appreciation for how the ingredients of the various sets interact, is start mixing your own. Because you don't have to stick with the provided sets. You can say, I'm going to use yellow from set one and I'm going to use red from set four and put that together if you'd like. So that's part of the fun of the game, I think, too. Yeah, I agree with that. I haven't done that very much myself. My family tends to like to play set one, dabble with set two. My family likes games for the familiar rather than the novelty. So they like to, you know, have repeated experiences. So I played a ton of set one, which is even the decisions, the purchasing decisions in set one are pretty much autopilot, always buy blue. And that's the game. (laughs) There is... And I got so bored of doing that. That's when I just started doing the Mandrake strategy, which is either going to blow everybody else up, but more often you're going to lose the game. But just to make it more fun, (laughs) where you only buy Mandrakes, nothing else ever. So have you done that and your family still is buying blue all the time? Yeah. 
Okay. And I've won with it, but it's very rare. I mean, it's. So I, I hear you when say it works, that uh, you're, you're going to give it a high score for the next prompt. Yeah. Let's talk about strategy there, Dave. So, same scale, one to five. Well, <laughs> I'm not. I mean, it's almost all strategy, right? I'm, uh, but I'm without saying what number I'm going to give it yet. But it's really no, really, you evaluate number. market. We're there. <laughs> well, I will, but I'm saying you evaluate the market, you divine your path to victory, and then you execute it. So, and there is a little bit of tactical maneuvering where, like, oh, I only got 14, but I really wanted to get to 16. Now, what am I going to do because I came up short? So, there's a little bit of that, but pretty much it's the beginning of the game. You pick what you want to do and just stick to that path as much as you can. I don't know. It's a two strategy wise, maybe. <laughs> it's not that. I mean, you could also go willy nilly and still have a pretty good chance of winning. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, I think especially when we start talking about the expansions and how you're encouraged to buy multiple colors. I mean, strategy kind of goes out the window at that point. But what did you have, Paul? I, I begrudgingly give it a two as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to say one, but that wouldn't be honest. Yeah, and I also had it as a two. I don't think there is a lot of strategy to the game other than deciding when you want to bust or when you want to avoid it. And then, yes, there's understanding how the different ingredients are going to interact. But a lot of times, you know, you'll be looking at it and say, oh, gee, I really want to buy, you know, a moth and I want to buy a two blue, but I'm $1 short. So now I got to figure out the next best set of ingredients or just be content to leave a lot of money on the table and try to stick with a single strategy. So I'll give it a two for that reason. So then luck, how much do you think luck plays a factor in this game? And there's a top stop here. <laughs> right. It could be in the title of the game. I mean, it's a luck fest, right? Well, it's a probability fest. You can argue it either way. It is a probability yeah. fest, right? <laughs> There's other games where you draw more than one thing at a time, or you actually roll dice that I would call probability tests. This one, I don't know. <laughs> well, but you usually know when you're drawing into your bag that two of the chips of the 10 that are left in my bag can blow me up. So I got a 20% chance of blowing up. Like, it's kind of straight statistics at that point. Yeah, but unless you're playing 48 games, you're not going to see those statistics. I've only played 46. <laughs> Sorry, I got it wrong. <laughs> if you're like me, you're you're hitting the tails of the distribution all the time. Right. So come on, how about some ratings? Yeah, so uh, I, I'm giving this the mythical five in yeah, luck. Nice. Max luck. It's for sure a five. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you do have some control with your flask, right? And some round cards say that you can go to eight. Yeah, but what did no. Dave just say? You flask and then you draw the exact same chip? Yeah, no, you're right. It's a five. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's part of the fun. This is something I was thinking about. I feel like it's a, an age-old discussion. I also feel like it's probably solved. But in this case, is this game any different if we use cards instead of drawing out of a bag? Is it, it Quacks of Quedlinburg, the deck builder, any different from quacks the the bag builder you mean challengers <laughs> i i haven't played challengers yet yeah so maybe i i don't see much difference myself interesting a shuffled deck of cards is the same as drawing into a bag of chips a shuffling is far more annoying without the pleasing sounds of a chip yeah bag. 
Well, sure. Tactically, this is you know way better or tactilely. I mean, but right. statistically, experientially, or whatever, it it's the same thing, right? Drawing out of a bag or drawing off of a deck. Sure, I think so. I guess off yes. of the deck, you get into the Candyland aspect of it, where you know once the deck is shuffled in Candyland, the winner is determined, and so there's no right. decisions, there's no game. <laughs> Candyland's an activity and not a game. So I guess once you shuffle your deck, if you're going to do it that way. Whether you bust or not, or what happens is pre-programmed at that point. Well, but you're reshuffling every round. That's it's that's it's the philosophical though. You're you're saying a deck yeah. of cards is pre-programmed and drawing one at a time out of a bag is not. But to me, it is experientially. Oh, totally. as, long as, I'm, yeah. as long as I'm honest, <laughs> the re- yes. right. The result is the same. Right. It's a random sequence of things that happen. Yeah. In one case, it's already set. In the other one, you're discovering it. But either way, the result is going to be the same. And as long as you're shuffling the deck after every round so that everything you pulled out is going to be available again, as opposed to drawing to the end of the deck before a reshuffle, then I, I see no difference between the two. Yeah, that actually reminds me, I hadn't thought of it till now, that there is um, somebody had a homebrew Dominion as a bag building game. And it's the exact same thing, but you have little, they made little wooden discs in a bag. And so when you make your purchases from the market, you just throw a new disc in there and you don't have to shuffle and wear out your cards and it turned it into quacks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's a big reason that I actually prefer playing a role for the galaxy over race for the galaxy. I I just get annoyed at shuffling cards, especially if there's like a hundred of them. (laughs) And I, I love rolling dice or pulling out acrylic chips. Interesting. Okay. It doesn't bridge the gap for me. I, I think roll is the inferior game. Rolling dice is more game, fun. Yes, but I'm, I'm talking about yeah. the, the tactileness. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree with that. All right. Save it for that pod. We're, we're, not, we're not there yet. <laughs> I'm not going to. I won't be on the roll for the galaxy pod. <laughs> <laughs> well, getting back to Quacks, theme. So how much do we think the theme has been integrated with this game? Same scale. I want to hear what you have to say. I, All right. I, I have mixed thoughts. I begrudgingly give it a four just because uh, I feel like a quackpot when I play. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see what this ingredient does. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I also gave it a four because I felt like, you know, I was just throwing random stuff in there. The idea that you're swirling your cauldron the way that you've got a go around, you know, it kind of feels like you've got the ladle and you're stirring the thing. Am I actually making a potion and trying to sell it to someone? No, but I think they've done a really great job with the artwork and everything and the components on here. So I gave it a four. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes me feel even more like an alchemist than the game alchemists, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's one of my favorites. We're, we're, we will do that one someday. Nice. All right, Dave, you've heard our numbers. I'm going to keep it down at a two. I feel like they could have leaned into it a little more, maybe some, you know, flavor on the event cards rather than just straight information. I mean, I agree. Graphic, the graphic design, the components, that that all fits very well with the theme and whimsical. But as far as gameplay, I mean, it kind of could have been anything. I enjoy the theme, but I don't feel like the theme informs the gameplay or vice versa at all. They feel completely disconnected to me. But I do hear what you're saying is that it's a fun theme, but I, I don't feel like it's necessary. Okay, that's fair. <gasps> <laughs> All right, so favorite player account. What is the best player account this game is played at? 
You know, um, I don't think it matters. <laughs> this is the one game where yeah. <laughs> I don't give an owl's hoot about the player count because <laughs> the game's the same no matter how many players are playing. At least for me, it is. Even, even the, the playtime is pretty similar. Right. So I'll, I'll go with four or five since I have to give a number, whatever the max is based on if you have the base game or an expansion. Okay. Well, any player count over three, though, you kind of have the seven wonders effect. True. Where you cannot affect the people on the other side of the table. And when it comes specifically to the moths or some cards that say, if the player next to you blew up, we drew that card the other night and like Greg did nothing but blow up the whole game. He just, he got in a tilt situation like Paul and, said. And where, since he was sitting next to me, I got to coast into second place. That's right. And I was on the other side of him and I was in first. <laughs> and, and, and Greg was in that situation where he had to go to the end or bust every time. And so, you know, he, he was just, that's the situation that happened to him. So he happened to bust. It was unstoppable at some point. And I was on the other end. Right next to Todd now who re- who refused to bust. And so I didn't take advantage <laughs> of that stuff. Right. So your number, Dave? I'm going to say uh, three, maybe four. But I was happy with five. Four and five is fine. But I'm going to say three is the best player count. But really with the caveat, but it's all good. Yeah, I think you gave a good justification for that. Yeah. And then you're also farther away from component limitations, right? At three, if you're not scaling them down, then you're probably, well, you're going to be less likely to, to sell out of blue fours because there are more of them to go around. Uh, Dave's just going to pre-scale down his, his components for three players. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I like the limitations. So you're kind of talking me back up to five player as the best count because I like the <laughs> concept of a limitation. What about yours, Todd? Yeah. For me, it's the more the merrier. If it's base game, it's four. If we're playing with your witches in five, I, I'm fine with the seven wonders effect. The fun is is hearing all the groans and everybody trying to experience pushing their luck, especially because, and we'll talk about it here in playing time. It hasn't made a difference. Three, four, five, it all plays the same. So have five of them. So then Lee's favorite player count, and I'll just say on top of that, I would still play the game at two, but there's just less opportunity to earn rat tails. Uh, component shortages don't become a thing. And, you know, your moths are not as effective. You're only going to pick up one if the other person doesn't draw as many. So for me, two is less interesting, but I would still play the game at two. Yeah. Is there a single player? Uh <laughs> version but yeah i agree there are some variants that people have posted kind of homebrew one player versions but they're not official got it yeah i'm i would also say two some of the things are zero sum like the die either i get the die roll or my opponent gets it there's no third or fourth person who might get it so either the person whom i'm beating or the person who's beating me just straight across gets the die roll so and same with some of the cards the rat tails some like that so i don't know i'd still play it too though i don't think anything's lost so then actual playing time because boxes can lie the box here says the, a game takes 45 minutes, which is interesting because it's not a range. It just says 45 minutes. <laughs> Plays two to four in 45 minutes. <laughs> and that might have been our first clue. So what are your thoughts here? Yeah, I think it's closer to 50, but pretty true. Did you say 50 minutes? Yes. Well, our play times recently were 75 and 90 pretty much thereabouts. You're talking about with the expansions though, right, Dave? Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. When I play with my family, we're almost done. We're, we're right at about 45. Wow. Okay. I, as a game group in general, our Monday night game group, we're a little slow. 
And so I wasn't surprised <laughs> to see 75 to 90. Well, just when, you know, just when I want to accuse somebody else, like we're really slow because of this person, then I get AP and I'm the one who's making us slow. So, you know, we yeah, all absolutely. contributed to it at some point. So in general, we're a little slow, but yeah, I did. I had forgotten we played with expansions, which do kind of slow things down. Right. I am agreeing with Paul. I think it's been 50 to 60 minutes, generally speaking. And I didn't realize that we were up around 94 games with the expansion, but base game by itself. Yeah, it's 50 to 60 minutes and it's fine. It's good to keep things moving. So it, it shouldn't be a, a long drawn out affair. Well, the the 90 minutes was us arguing for 25 minutes about what Witch's Hump does. That's true. That's... <laughs> All right. So which edition is the best? And I, I don't know if there's much to talk about here. There really has only been one edition. I, I don't know. There's there's rules yeah. differences. <laughs> my my edition is the best. Okay. Yes. Well, and on top of that, we did talk about coin capsules or the geek up bits. We've kind of made mention to them. Yeah, let's talk about those. I almost feel that either of those options is essential. I've never played it with the cardboard chits, and I really don't want to. Yeah, <laughs> I, I feel I like they're going to get damaged right away. It it loses that, you know, the tactile feel, but I feel like they're going to start to have some wear. You're going to be able to feel where your like three garlic is or something like that. <laughs> and coin capsules are uh, effective, but a little bit big, you know, to fit on the board. And the geek up bits from the Board Game Geek store are just absolutely perfect. They are. I have played the library copy of Quacks at Board Game Geek Con with just the cardboard chips, and some of them are practically unreadable because mm, they've yeah. they've seen such wear. So I absolutely agree. Uh, a component update is as close to essential as uh, you can get if you are going to be playing this game with any kind of frequency, which hopefully you are. Now we're on to expansions. What are your thoughts about these two? So for the listeners, the Herb Witches are once per game powers that you randomly draw three witches and each player can use the power of each witch once during the course of the game. You get special witch pennies to indicate when you've used it. And then there are components for a fifth player. What about the pumpkins, Todd? Oh, yeah. So there are some pumpkins that cost 22 and are worth six when you pull them as opposed to the original pumpkin, which cost three and only moved one. There is a new ingredient called the loco weed that can be variable based on whichever recipe you're using for that game. It might be equal to the number of rat tails you were awarded is an example of one of those. And then they have uh, some extra ingredient sets. So that's herb witches. And then the alchemists has a separate board and you gain essence based on the different number of chips that are in your cauldron. And then there are some other things that go into it, like did your neighbor blow up or did your garlic total equal seven? And you are moving your essence marker along this track. And then on the subsequent round, based on the power you selected, and everybody can choose one of three that are randomly determined at the start of the game, but the power, you might be able to spend essence to do something like move your pumpkin to the next ruby space as opposed to just the one space, or I guess the six spaces if you were playing with both of them. So what are your thoughts on the expansions? Well, what about the the variant 
Right. So there's Wolfgang's exchange office, which is a rack of test tubes that you can advance a second drip marker. So the base game has a second drip marker. There's a flip side to the player board where when anytime you can move a drip, you can move along that and you get various awards based on how far down you get. Wolfgang's exchange office is another one of those that you take that second drip, you use that instead. And anytime you decide to move along it, it gives you some discounted ability to basically gain access to points. So one side, at the end of the game, you dump out all your chips, you add them all together, and then you divide by the number you got along that track. So if you're at the start, it's dividing by 15, and you get that many points. And if you get to the other end, you divide by two. You could get a lot of points depending on how many things you bought. And then the flip side of it does something different. But that's a promo. It's harder to find, and it's not even included in the, the mega box. It's just for bragging rights. <laughs> so I think the expansions, Herb Witches and Alchemist, just, they're overpowered. <laughs> I mean, we were, even Herb Witches gives you a space to go beyond 35. And in Alchemist, we kept hitting 35, multiple turns, multiple players. It, it just, it felt ridiculous to me. All right. We're pretty clearly curmudgeonly about expansions in general. I feel like we have the same discussion every time we bring up expansions on a game is that they tend to make games more solitaire, although this is a pretty solitary game to begin with. And, you know, so they they tend to reduce player interaction. They tend to add things to the game without really adding anything to the game and take away from the essence of the game of like what made the game interesting. And I think these kind of suffer from that as well. It's just more stuff going on. Now, The Alchemists, I enjoyed the playing of The Alchemists in the same, like it was fun, but I don't think it improved the game. It was fun in the way we talk about when we play Anno 1800 is at the, the actual gameplay of Anno 1800 is so fun. You could get lost in it and go, oh, wait, I should be focusing on winning the game rather than just kind of having fun building all this stuff. Right. And Alchemist was kind of that way. It, it was an interesting thing to do. It just, it made it too high octane, which is a term that I keep using every time we bring up expansions is that. What makes a game fun is things like limited resources and competition for those resources and being able to try to excel within the parameters that you've been giving. And then these expansions really just take those limitations off and just go wild. And like Paul said in the last one we played, we were hitting 35. Like we pegged it so many times in one play and it <laughs> kind of takes the fun out of it. You know, in a lot of games, engine builders and stuff like that, it's like right when you get your engine up, the game's over and you're like, oh, okay, but that's the game. To really put that in relief, I think winning scores of the base game, at least in our group, if you get to 60 points, you've probably won the game. But when we play with the expansion, if you're not getting to 100, you're doing something wrong. Oh, yeah. Right. And in Todd's case, I mean, what, 150. <laughs> yeah. I was, is that what it was, 150 with Alchemist? No, I think it was 127. The, yeah, okay. Yeah. He, you he didn't get around the board last time, but three times. Yeah, it was... Uh, it just feels ridiculous. ridiculous. Yeah. But <laughs> the reason I asked about the promo and brought up the variant board is I think when you're playing the expansions, don't bother moving your drop on your main board because you're <laughs> you're going to be flying around and around. So play the variant board or the promo and move your drop across those tracks instead. Interesting. The challenge I had, because I have played with the promo board, is that it slows your economy down. And so you're saying that 
the expansions are high octane enough to compensate for that. I but think so. You do need starting capital to get that snowball rolling. And if the initial drip, even if you're only moving it two or three, that's usually enough to get you to an early level four chip of something. Now that you started that ball rolling and it's, you know, with Alchemist, it's you're, you're earning the essence by having multiple colors so you can start to do all that. Or maybe that drip movement is allowing you to buy two different chips. You're adding two colors to your pot and now you have more essence. I feel like you got to get started. And when I've played with the promo and I focus solely on moving that drop, my engine didn't get started the same way. Were you doing herb witches? I was. Okay. Mainly what we talked about are the extra stuff that the expansions bring. Mm -hmm. Things that are welcome would be the event cards, having more event cards. Because with just the base Mm -hmm. game, after a ton of plays, we were starting to see the same cards over and over again. So just having in those event cards, you know, you're not really diluting the deck. There there could be a million in there and, you know, they're just for varied experiences. So you could splash in as many as you want. And then also having new ingredient sets. Like that's totally welcome. More ingredient sets and more event cards. But extra boards and extra things going on on the side and all that. It's just not that kind of game, I don't think. We talked about the essence of of bag building and and now all these (laughs) things are taking away from that. And that's what made it so clean. Such a curmudgeon, Dave. Yeah. I am. I'm just really, I've spent so much money on expansions and I just feel we're, we're in the minority. You know, when you go on board game geek and read people's thoughts, like they love these things that just open the game up. So now I can just get the highest score ever possible without anyone getting in my way. And people love that kind of stuff. And for me, I think, I don't know, that wasn't that fun. So I like Herb Witches. It may not be must-have, but I love the fifth player. I love the extra components, and I love the new ingredient sets. The Loco Weed is fine. I like the new pumpkins. And I thought the Witches are fine. I mean, they're they're once per game, so it, it's not terrible. It's just one more thing to kind of use as brinksmanship. Although we did have the one that was you can't bust. Mm-hmm. And so we all basically just hung on to that one until the last round so we could push our luck as far as we could and not have to worry about busting because there was, you know, that witch power that preserved us. But but I liked it. You don't suffer the consequences of busting. And I appreciate, again, you saying we all did that because I used mine early on because I was, <laughs> I, I, I got backwards very early on and I had to use it. And Alchemists, I thought it was interesting. Dave, you and I both picked the Carrot Nose character for that one. Mm-hmm. That particular power was if you draw a pumpkin, you can spend two essence. So it only works in round two and beyond after you had a chance to earn essence to instead of placing the pumpkin, the one space forward on the next ruby space. So it could be anywhere from one, which you wouldn't spend essence because the pumpkin's going to do that anyway. So two to four spaces to move. That turned out to be like a really powerful power that I had no idea that was going to be as useful as it was. Oh, was it for you? <laughs> was it useful for you? It was ridiculous. Oh, I had a bunch of pumpkins. I just didn't bother to draw them. They were constantly <laughs> left over the last ones in my you bag. You never bothered to gain any essence either, Dave. Well, I tried. I, you know, I, I <laughs> bought all the different colors, but I just kept, you know, drawing all my white and then one color and then I had to stop. So it just didn't go yeah. well for me, but it, it, it was my decisions. <laughs> it's a it was my poor decisions. Five. Yeah. But when it comes to expansions, so I'll play with either one. 
one of them and I'll like it. Probably won't play with both of them at the same time because it's going to start turning Quacks into a longer experience than the incremental enjoyment I'm getting out of it. Yeah. If it becomes regularly a 90 minute to two hour game, that's not where Quacks needs to be. How else are you supposed to get to a score of a 200 though? <laughs> <laughs> Someone's going to have this be their favorite game and they've done it and hats off to them. I'll still rest on 127 and say that that was pretty amazing. Well, those are the people who like, you know, five player, six player Catan with the ships and everything when it's a three hour version of Catan. Like for me, Catan, 45 minutes, get in, get out. Let's go play something else. It was great. But three (laughs) hours of that's not for me. Got it. All right. So the most recognizable comparison, the highest ranking game that reminds you of Quacks. What did you have, Dave? Well, I'll take the easy one because I actually had a tough time coming up with anything beyond, you know, a few obvious ones. So I'm going to say Dominion. Yep. Is that it takes that concept of, as just the first deck builder I remember playing, builds on that concept and made it a little more interesting. So that's the one I choose. All right. That's a good one. And I really liked your story about the person who made their custom bag building version of it. Like that needs to become a product. Yeah. Paul, what'd you have? Well, a game that is very much like Quacks, in my opinion, but that I slightly prefer is Cubitos. Uh, Good pick. Instead of drawing chips out of a bag, you're you're rolling dice and you can buy new dice to add to what you're rolling. Uh, and I prefer it because it is a probability game. <laughs> in my opinion, (laughs) and that you can actually think about how to get the best probabilities and what path to take in the race that you're running, which is what everybody's trying to do, finish a race in first place by purchasing all of these dice. Yep, that's a good one. I I looked at that one. For me, the easy pick was Orléans, and I realized that was closely riffed off of with Altiplano, but I'll stick with Orléans just because I had the same feeling of, okay, I'm reaching into the bag and I really hope I draw this one color. Okay, I, I got it. Or I didn't, whichever way it works. And then, you know, I'm using that to develop the board. Like I said, there's more to that game. But for me, that would be the closest comparison because it has the same feeling out of the bag building. Less recognizable comparison. What's a more distant game that reminds you of Quacks? And for me, this one was hard. Well, I I name-dropped it earlier. Challengers is my pick for less recognizable game and, in my opinion, less likable game. (laughs) (laughs) But basically, you're drafting from a very small subset of cards into your deck, and then you're just giving it to the gods and, and seeing what happens as you turn over card by card. You're basically like playing war and then you get to alter your deck a little bit more and then play war once more. Uh, Wow. So to me, it's very much like quacks because I think of drawing from a bag the same way as, as turning over the top card of a deck. You mean the Kennerspiel de Jars winning game challengers? (laughs) <laughs> That's the, the lesser well, known it is It is lesser known now, but that might not be true a year from now. Right. It's ranked, I just looked it up, it's ranked 1100 something. So it's still ranked pretty low. So it qualifies for less recognizable. It's still climbing. What'd you have, Dave? You know, I'm down to three. So why don't you go so I don't steal yours? And that maybe might help li- li- limit mine down. I went with an older Alea game 
or Leah, however we want to call it, Witch's Brew. It is more just based on theme because the mechanics of that game are much different. So you have 12 roll cards that you're picking from and each round everyone's going to pick five of them. And when you choose to play a role, you can say, I am, and you, whatever the role is, right? You know, I am, I am the lead witch I, and I forget what they're called. But if someone has picked that card down the line, they can say, no, no, I am so-and-so. And then they may get the major power for being that person and you get nothing or they can say so be it and if you go with so be it you guarantee yourself the minor power but someone who goes after you you know they can say nope i am the lead witch and whoever had claimed the role before is going to lose everything but anyone who said so be it yeah i never said i was the lead witch so i'm going to get my lesser power so it's more of a a bluffing game but then you're using your roles to gather ingredients and deliver potions for points i haven't played it i'd love to try it all right, we'll have a theme night. I, I have played it. <laughs> I, I didn't like it, but I'd play it again. <laughs> well, it was uh, re-implemented as a card game, and Alexander Pfister helped co-develop the card game version. Oh, cool. Hmm. But the card game version is inside the top 750, so I can't talk about it. Is that a Leah mid-box, or is it a big box? It's a mid-box. Okay. And then it was re-implemented as a broom service, was the card game version, and oh, then okay. they came out with like <clears throat> Broom Service Express, which was their extra small or micro size. Oh, Witch's Brew was a 2008 SDJ nominee. Yes, it was. Hmm. Well, you guys did not eliminate anything from my list at all. So I'm just going to lean into the, the push your luck element of it. And I'm going to say Ink and Gold. That That's kind nice. of the, one of the quintessential, I mean, that or Can't Stop, those two are the quintessential press your luck games. Right. I mean, ink and gold would be pretty interesting if you got to, when you come out, spend that gold on you know, ingredients. <laughs> yeah, you know, right? what, what's interesting about both of those, Dave, is is neither one has a catch-up mechanism. Right? Just your guts. Just your own courage. That's your catch-up <laughs> mechanism. <laughs> oh, man. My son, I mean, it is don't stop for him. He is going to have one play maybe in his life where he wins in round one. And then he's automatically losing every other because he just keeps he keeps rolling those <laughs> dice until he. <laughs> I think until it's a I think it's a stage of development. Is that <laughs> I don't know where it is. Eighteen years old, maybe twenty five years old. You just you are unable to follow that inner voice that tells you you have to stop here. Because <laughs> my kids are the same way. Ink and gold. It's like you must turn around, and they're like, "No, I'm going for it." Oh man, I died. <laughs> like, of course you died. Have you not been paying attention? <laughs> it's an age of reason kind of thing. You just, if you're under 25, you can't do it. Right. Right. All right. That was a great choice. So house rules. Do we need to revisit the house rules that you play with, Dave? Like starting with a Ruby and a component limitation. Is there anything else you want to add? Oh, so by house rule, you mean the thing that's written in my rule book? <laughs> I guess that rule book is in my house. So I will take your logic there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's the official rule. That Look, I do, I do have a house rule is that it expressly says in the, the rule book that you cannot look in your bag. But I think it's not that kind of game. It's, it, it, that's, it's not a memory game. I, I'm totally fine with somebody looking in their bag before they decide if they're going to continue, throw everything back in and mix it up and then, you know, go on. Yeah, you just don't look in your bag while you're drawing. No. I, well, Todd did so well in our last game, I had to make sure he understood that rule. <laughs> You're supposed to, you were watching me. Draw. You saw me. I know. You saw me pulling them out. Come on. 
And you pulled the right one every time. I had insane luck. I definitely have uh, a karmic correction coming my way soon. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> Wait, do you guys have house rules? I already used Dave's house rule without knowing it was a house rule. So there you go. Which was <laughs> I when I when I'm trying to decide if I need to stop or continue, I will look in my bag and look at what the odds are. Uh yeah, like once it's in your bag, you're not supposed to look in it at all. Like even when you're buying, if you're like say, Oh, how many how many blues have I bought? You're you're not supposed to go. I also buy. empty my entire bag's contents between rounds while I'm making purchases. <laughs> all right. Well there you go. We have some house rules. So if this game is being played at game night, then what do you want to play afterwards? So what's a double feature that goes along with it? I think it's light and jaunty as a game. So I think it pairs well with something a little heavier. Okay. You know, you throw anything in there like brass or, or whatever. I actually, my first instinct was like Res Arcana, but I thought eh, it's too much theme wise. It's too, too much. So I would just shift gears entirely and get into like one of our, you know, heavier economic games we like to play and use this as a aperitif. I, I think it's funny you said shift gears because that's what we doubled up with a couple days ago. We literally did shift gears. Yeah. With heat. <laughs> yes. Paul, how about you? I said the same thing. I want to wash my mouth out with Age of Steam. <laughs> after, after drinking all those potions. <laughs> Well, I, I stayed in theme and I doubled down and I went with uh, the board game version of a match three game. And that's Potion Explosion. I played that on a computer. There's a board game version. There is a board game version. Yeah. Huh. As you are drafting marbles out of this this series of ramps, you know, you're, you're then creating three that will come together, three or more. And if they do, then you get to take them. And you're accumulating this collection of marbles that you are then exchanging for flasks. And the flasks have powers, have single use powers on them. So you can decide that I'm going to spend this flask now to draw again or to, you know, pick one specifically or however the case may be. It's a fun little game and it's staying on theme with potions and things. Yeah, maybe staying on theme is a good idea. Somebody mentioned Alchemist earlier and that that might pair up well is kind of once once the juices are flowing. Oh, that actually, I would like that a lot. Yeah, there you go. Done. All right. So what feature of this game still stands out to you? Now, it's only five years old, so it's relatively recent. What do you like the best about Quacks of Quedlinburg? It's brevity. That's a good one. Yeah, and the fact that it plays in 45 minutes, no matter the player count. You know what you're getting into. You yep. know when the pain is going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> it does not wear out its welcome, that's for sure. It, it feels just right. Right. I had Push Your Luck plus Bag Building. Like That's a combination that just isn't seen enough for me. And when I was looking for the comparison games, it was hard to find ones that did both of those things. Yeah, I have the same. If you like deck building or bag building or even just engine building in general, this fits perfectly, of course. Yep. So then what feature of the game disappoints you like the least about it? For me, it's just the extreme swings of luck that seem to happen every time I play. <laughs> right. <laughs> if we're playing four or five player games, someone's going to have it in their favor. And sometimes right? it's me, but still, it's like, yeah. <laughs> well, if that swingy luck is so consistent, is it still, I mean, it's just something to count on in the game. It's just who's going to get it, I guess. Right. I agree. One of the things that I, I don't like about the game that I would put here that you might find frustrating uh, if you don't like this in games is I feel that most often early on, the end rankings are pretty set. Like if somebody jumps out ahead by turn four, 
without all the crazy expansion stuff and you know the point salad that it becomes but in the base game generally when somebody starts to pull ahead even with the rat tails it's really hard to catch up and it's you can very early on just realize that great i got third place let's finish the game and i will be in third place like it's all set by the middle of the game i don't see much right. move jockeying around occasionally there might be a battle for you know second place but there's not a lot of jockeying around after turns three and four yeah like i've seen it happen where two of us are competing for first place and because you've got to keep drawing because the other person keeps drawing somebody busts right so someone who was going to be in third place suddenly finishes in second true so there is that that has happened but it's not common so i agree with you dave usually you can tell what the finishing order is going to be although it's been a while since i've checked but your example That's outside of the rules, right? Like if you and I are, you know, neck and neck while we're drawing our bag, we're not supposed to be looking. Psychological pressure, though, you're you know, you're neck and neck with somebody and that makes you want to push a little further. I think there's some side glances and glancing going on. I think people are aware. The last round, it's open information. You are looking at each other's cauldron. I know that you are on spot 22 and I'm on spot 24. Right. Right. But every round before that, I think you're not supposed to pay attention. That's true. But what I'm talking about is in that final round, you know, when you are drawing at the same time and holding your hand out there, did you go? Did you not? That whole thing. I have seen two people go after each other because I can't stop if Paul doesn't stop. Right. Right. And so I push myself and I bust. And suddenly you, who were going to be in third place, because I now have to choose points or buy, and I'm going to choose points, but now there's potentially six or seven points that I didn't get to buy because I busted. And you were able to stop and take second place, right? Assuming Paul didn't bust as well. Right. So that's the 18xx rule, right? First place or or last place (laughs) or die trying, basically. Exactly. Did this game replace a previous one for you? And if so, what was it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It replaces Dominion for me. Paul and I got out Dominion and played a couple two-player games, I don't know, a couple months ago. And and that was the first time I'd played Dominion in 10 years or more. So it's a very similar feel to Dominion, but I never play that game anymore. And I play Quacks quite a bit. Right. For me, it was Can't Stop. And I really enjoy Can't Stop. And I'll play it again, you know, if someone wants to. But for my family and I, at least, when we're looking for one of these Push Your Luck games, we're playing Can't Stop or we're playing Diamant slash Ink and Gold. Uh Sorry, we're playing Quacks or Ink and Gold, not Can't Stop. Because you can knock out three or four games that Can't Stop in the time it takes to play Quacks. That's what I was thinking. That's a 15, 20-minute game, right? It can be, especially if your son never stops. (laughs) (laughs) has this game since been replaced and if so by what and i'll just go ahead and say nope not yet not for me anyway yeah for me it's cubitos uh although we're we're still as a family trying to get the playtime of cubitos down under an hour but once it is i think it'll have taken the spot interesting okay hmm It, it hasn't for me it's still the only game we go to when we're looking for that type of experience right now right okay so soundtrack What music would you want to listen to while playing this game? Or what music would be appropriate, do you think? Because again, we usually forget about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want something zany and silly like uh, Dr. Demento or Weird Al Yankovic, (laughs) especially uh, Dare to be Stupid. Right. (laughs) Okay. I took it in another direction here. I'm thinking 
every time we go to start from the bag, we turn on time by Pink Floyd, which is kind of the clocks and then the right. like long drawn out, like dun dun dun. <laughs> so I want, you know, and then if you go, if you're able to go long enough, then you get to the like explosive, you know, kind of lyrical part of right. it. So I'm going to go time. So not the gongs and then the the cash registers, but the although that would work, I, I'm up for that. <laughs> I, let's just put on let's just put on Dark Side of the Moon, and especially because it has that like uh, I forget the name of the song, but the where it's that kind of crying into death, or I forget what it's called, but right. that fits perfectly with some of these games that I've had. <laughs> so I, uh, I I've talked about this site in the past, Mellow Dice. They have a playlist for this game, and it had a YouTube track called The Alchemist's Lab by Manic Pixel. That's excellent. But straying away from Melodice, I know I want something that sounds medieval, dark, and yet humorous. And so I found the Trying 2 soundtrack on Spotify, and there was a track uh, by Ari Polkinen, and there's a, a track on there called The Lost Court of Mushroom Caves and another one called Goblins, and both of them were like just that right style. It definitely sounded a little ominous, but also had a, a humorous side to it. And that's what I think of when I think of Quacks. Awesome. So rating on the scale now of 1 to 10, how would you rate Quacks of Quedlinburg? Dave, why don't you start? Yeah, I rate it a 7. I mean, it's a game that comes off the shelf quite a bit in my family, and then having a chance to play it with you guys, uh, you know, a little, little more serious gaming time it fit very well in there as well it's i'm always up for a game of quacks so i'm gonna put it at a seven all right i'll go ahead and jump in and say i had it as an eight because i love the theme i love the blend of mechanics you know again push your luck bag building it's a great combination and the only thing that's holding it back from a higher score is that we should be able to get it down not just to 45 minutes but even less right this should be a fast game and if we could do that then i would bump it up well, that has to do with we're, we've been adding elements, changing the ingredient set. So you kind of have to relearn parts of it as you get into that. But if we played enough where we knew the ingredient sets, I think we could crank this out pretty quickly. True. And Paul? I'm surrounded by people who really like this game. So that boosts my rating of it to a five. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could really take it or leave it. I don't have strong feelings about it either way. Uh, but like Dave said, it, it usually does not overstay its welcome. That's fair. Well, I appreciate you being willing to play it. So then is it replayable? And if so, how soon would you want to revisit it? I guess, you know, the, the next time somebody asks me to play. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm happy if it's years away. <laughs> wow. So I said it was replayable. I mean, I can play this game probably every other week, especially if it's if it's a brief game. For me, it is replayable. Dave? Yeah, well, obviously it's replayable for me. I was actually surprised to see that I've, I have 46 logged plays of the game. But that's, you know, over Christmas when we first got it, my family, we would play, you know, three, four games a day, you know, a few days in a row. But it, it has that feel of no matter how your game went, you're like, I wonder if I could have done better. And it's almost like when you're right. trying to you're trying to accomplish something and you pull up short and you don't know where that limit is, how far you could have gotten. But, you know, let's let's play again. Let's go one more time. I feel like I can, you know, and then that game's busts and you're like, dang, one more time. Let's do it. So it has that like I want to try again right now. Right. Excellent. So with that, our cauldron has finally exploded <laughs> for our next episode. <laughs> We're all aboard as we embark on another train themed journey. 
thank you guys. Really enjoyed the conversation and uh, the opportunity to revisit this game. Yeah, pleasure. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to Replayable. Support for our podcast comes from listeners like you. You can find us online at replayable.fm, on Twitter as replayable.fm, and on Instagram as replayable.fm. You can also join our team at patreon.com slash replayable. Thank you for your support. We welcome your feedback, which is the only way that we are going to get better. You can get in touch with us via email at feedback at replayable.fm. And if you're interested in sponsoring us, then please contact us at sponsors at replayable.fm. This episode of Replayable is brought to you by Floodgate Games, the makers of lasting games like Sagrada Artisans. Their motto is creating everlasting experiences through gaming, and that idea resonates with us here at Replayable. As a group of friends who have been enjoying weekly game nights for over 15 years, we have many fun memories that were forged over the gaming table. Gaming is what brought us together and keeps us coming back again and again. Thank you to Floodgate Games, creating everlasting experiences through gaming.